Uh, we have been uh, journeying through the uh, little book in the Bible called Philippians. It's only four chapters long. And we are at the halfway point. Uh, if you're just joining us, that's the book uh, that we're in, Philippians. And, uh, but we're, since we're at the halfway point, it, it's a perfect time to sort of pause for a moment, address a few other things. Uh, so over the next couple of weeks, uh, we'll be looking at some different things two weeks from today as our congregational meeting. So we're going to sort of recapture our vision. Who are we? We're, what are we all about? We're going to try to bring to you some of the discussions uh, from our elder retreat that we had in January to that message. Uh, toward the end of the month, we'll start into the season of Lent. So we'll talk about some ways to sort of enter into that. Uh, but this morning, I want to talk about the subject of worship. It's one of those things that we sort of just know and we've sort of heard about, but we don't stop sometime to step back from it and think, what is it we're doing here again on Sunday morning? And by worship, I'm thinking specifically of our gathering on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, even though I understand, as I think many of you do, that worship isn't just when we're in this place on this day. Uh, but that's going to be the focus today, thinking about making space for God and thinking about God's space in which we also worship. Uh, so if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1. That's going to be one of our starting texts this morning. Uh, it's also, I believe, in your bulletin, that little uh, portion of uh, 18, chapter 1, verse 18, and a few verses to follow there. And I just want to give a very brief outline here of this, uh, this passage, 18 through 25. I'll walk us through little pieces of it, but it starts off uh, sort of the beginning of this very majestic book called Romans. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So an easy way to think of Romans 1.18 is... When God's truth is suppressed, God's wrath is expressed. Uh, and the rest of 19 through 22 show how humanity suppresses uh, the truth. And then the rest of chapter 1, really all the way through to chapter, uh, uh, halfway through chapter 3, is how God's wrath comes against people who resist God's truth, how, how ultimately they... they uh, reveal their worthiness of judgment, if I can put it that way. But let's look just at 19 through 22, because this is a great passage to help us know what is worship. And 19 through 22 is how humanity suppresses the truth of God. So imagine you're reading the Bible for the very first time, and you, you read this, these couple of verses, and then you went back and read it again. My guess is you would get what they're about. You don't need... Uh, to know that much here, but verse 19, notice the emphasis. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Uh, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So, in just those two verses, we can see that there is something about God that requires people to sort of push the truth down. It's that obvious. Think of the words, known, plain, shown, clearly perceived in creation. 
And, and what is it that uh, can be known about God without ever having to visit a church uh, or ever opening the Bible? Well, humanity no has no excuse that there is a God and that his power is eternal. That's the first thing. So think about the word eternal for just a moment. Uh, something that's eternal is something different than this world, which is not. Everything's dying in this world. Everything is ending in this world. Everything in this world shouts constantly that it's not eternal, that it's limited. And so to say that uh, God's power is eternal, we can recognize that it is a power outside of this world that brought this world into existence, which is exactly opposite of the two most dominant ideas apart from biblical creationism, which is paganism, which dominates tends to dominate the uh, underdeveloped areas of the world. Paganism, there are gods or, or whatever it might be, there's different names for it, and they're constantly competing against one another. Uh, so there, there really is a certain a sense in which uh, God and creation are one and the same. Uh, but various forms of that. The opposite, or not the opposite, but another version of how to suppress the truth here that God is... Uh, God's power is eternal, is found mostly in the developed world. It's the idea of materialism, meaning all there is is material. There is no outside thing. There's no outside person. There's just physical matter. That's all there is. It's the only thing that's certain in life. And against that is what the Bible says, that there is indisputable evidence in the world that this world was created by a designer, a designer who was intelligent, a designer who was, an in, who was intentional. The fingerprints of God are everywhere. It takes an enormous amount of mental denial to excuse that. Uh, it's much more difficult to, if you want to, every, every belief system has a set of doubts. Christianity has a set of doubts that haunt you. Uh, if, if they don't, you're probably not really thinking much about what you believe. Uh, every system has a, a system of doubts that haunt us. Uh, and believe me, materialism and atheism, the doubts that haunt those people are massively more than the doubts that haunt people who recognize that there is a God. So he has power that's eternal, but there's more than that. He's also a divine creator. We can learn from nature that God, in other words, that whoever put this into existence, compared to everything else in creation, the one who brought this into existence, his worth is superior to anything in creation. That's what we mean by uh, a divine uh, nature. And that leads us to the natural thing that human beings should be doing in verse 21. They should be honoring God or giving thanks to him, but actually they're not doing that. Uh, seeing God's power, that it's uh, eternal, seeing his nature, that it's divine. Honor and thanks should be the instinctive response of all of humanity. Honor and thanks should be the instinctive response of all of humanity. I would even go so far as to say that the glue that holds civilization together is a society that is honoring and thanking God. 
I, uh, I've, I've been reading and enjoying this uh, book along with Jason Smith, this book called Biblical The subtitle kind of about it. Uh, it's how the Bible's unfolding story, this guy works from Genesis to Revelation, makes sense of modern life and culture. It's brilliant. What's really brilliant about this bu- uh, book, uh, this, this uh, uh, theologian out of Australia, is um, he doesn't really say from so far, he doesn't really say anything new. He has this a massive ability to collect uh, resources from decades and decades of people who studied Christianity, most names, some, uh, many of the names you'd be familiar with, and synthesize it all together. Uh, so I'll just give you one thought from uh, what he says about creation. He says that the physical world is enchanted. I love that phrase. Instead of saying that there's an intelligent designer, we can go even further and say, uh, humanity can recognize that the physical world is actually enchanted. It, it speaks of a story, so to speak. And then he says this interesting idea. We as human beings are fundamentally receivers, not consumers. We are receivers, not consumers. And then he has all kinds of implications that he just ferrets out. That one idea. And this is what Roman says all that happens in the world begs for God to be given honor and for God to be given thanks. So that leads us to this uh, statement today we're going to look at. Just three things about what worship is. And Romans chapter 1 tells me this, that worship for human beings is as natural as breathing. Worship for human beings, by the way, notice what I'm saying I'm not saying worship of God is as natural as breathing. I'm saying worship is as natural as breathing. Because after all, look what they do. In verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Their minds were futile. Their hearts were dark. Claiming to be wise, they were actually fools. And what did they do? Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They didn't stop worshiping. They just worshiped something else other than God. And interestingly, the word worship comes from this old English word, which means worth-ship. So when you worship, what you're doing is you're acknowledging the worth of something. You're assigning worth to something. And, And we do it all the time, don't we? We assign worth to things like grades for kids when they go to school. Uh, we, we do it when brand new babies, which we've had lately, have been born. We, we assign worth to that. We, we do it for um, new vehicles that we buy. Uh, we, we do it for places that are dear to us. Uh, we do it, say, for the whole world, we stop on a day like today and we all gather around the most celebrated TV event in all of human history. <laughs> it is, by the way, the most watched uh, event of all, t- uh, of all things watched in a given year. Um, so we know what it's like to assign worth, but here's, here's what's interesting. The reason we assign worth to all of those things is because there is worth in all of those things. It's not wrong to worship those things in one sense. It's not wrong to assign worth to them because they're all created things. Here's the problem. Here's the danger. 
is that we recognize God's work without recognizing God. Or to put it even more simple, we have this natural tendency to worship the gift and forget about the giver. And that's what gets us in trouble, according to Romans chapter 1. The gift replaces the giver. So the first thing we should just know is that worship is as natural to us as breathing. We, we are assigning worth, but here's where it becomes biblical. It's all about God. Worship is all about God. Why are you here this morning? What's your most instinctive answer to that question? Is it obligation? Which I used to think was a bad answer. It's not necessarily a bad answer. But maybe you're here for the music. It's great. Maybe you're here for the people. That, they're great. For the message? Eh, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but you know what? It's interesting. It's also the same question I'll ask in our membership class. Uh, when you pick a, a church, what are you looking for? Almost every single time, almost every single answer is about our worship experience, not about God. We're not here for our experience of worship. We're here because God's here. It's all about God. It's all about honoring and thanking Him, as Romans 1 has pointed out here, who's worth more to us than all else. We're here because God is worth more to us than all, all else. That's why we talk in our vision, it's a Christ-centered community we're after. We're after a God-centered worship at the same time. In fact, interestingly, in this verse, uh, the John chapter 4, where Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman, and he makes this statement, she's, she thinks worship's all about a physical place where all the Jews have to gather, and she doesn't think the Samaritans should have to gather there. And Jesus says, the hour is coming, and then marvelously says, and is now here, meaning he's here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In other words, he's speaking about Christ is coming, and he's going to take the law of God and write it onto people's hearts, and it's going to radically change what worship is all about. It's going to be from the inside out, not from the law out. But then I want you to notice these last couple of words in John 4, 23. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Robert Rabin writes a book called, O Come, Let Us Worship, and he makes this profound statement about this verse. Nowhere in all the scriptures do we read of God's seeking anything else from the child of God. Nowhere in all of scripture do we read of God seeking anything else from the child of God. God seeks worshipers. Now, here's where the whole thing flips itself on its head. God doesn't seek worshipers because he needs something from them. He doesn't need anything from anyone ever or ever will. God doesn't need worshipers. So why, was God, why would God even seek worshipers? Because we need someone to worship. And he's the only one that fits that category. He seeks it because we need him, which leads to the third thing I want to say today, that worship is good for you. Worship is good for you. 
I've already established the fact that we are naturally worshiping beings. And God has created us worshiping beings. He's, he's created us to be connected to him. He's the other side of our umbilical cord. And here's what's fascinating is that Scripture makes this case over and over again in so many different ways. We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. In Romans chapter 1, what happens when we exchange the glory of the immortal Most High God for mortal creatures and animals? We become animals. Psalm 115 has a clever way of talking about it. They're idols speaking about the other nations outside of uh, God's people. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Thankfully, we've evolved way past that. That's sarcasm. Um, they have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. Those who make them become like them. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. In other words, we become non-seeing. We, we dull our senses. We lose sight of what's really real. Which is such an opposite picture in 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is the convert. We all with unveiled face. God's removed the veil. Uh, we behold the glory of the Lord. We are preoccupied with, with Jesus Christ. And guess what's happened? We're being transformed into the same image, almost like being out in the sun and getting a suntan from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we become like what we worship. We are created to enjoy God, to become like God. That's why Psalm 92 that Tim read for us, turn there if you have a Bible, uh, just a, a review of that psalm would be helpful. It starts right off that first line, it's good. Like, kind of like, you know, a, a child's told, hey, this is good for you. It's, it's good for you to be here. It's good for you to go through this rhythm of being with God's people on the Lord's day. It's good to give thanks to Him, etc., to sing praises. Uh, it's good for you to be wrapped up in the Most High God, verse 1, and to break out instruments in verse 3 and declare songs from the start of the day all the way till the end of the day. After all, we live under the shadow, or more specifically, the shower of the great works of God. But that's who we are. That we, our eyes have been opened. The veil has been removed. We live under the shower of the great works of God. Who else is going to honor and give God thanks? Well, certainly not others, because that's what the psalm goes on to say. Verses 5 through 9 is a contrast. Uh, it's, it's a contrast between uh, the person who sees God's works, the worshiper, and the suppressors in verses 6 through 9. These suppressors are oblivious to what's going on. So no wonder they're not giving God honor and thanks. They're becoming like what they worship. And in 10 through 15, here, are the, here is the great work of God. 
Basically, God is up to the business of making a people that are flourishing, a people who are doing uh, declaring. That's how the psalm begins, and that how, that's how the psalm ends. They are declaring God's tireless, tireless love in the morning. That's how the psalm begins. And they are declaring God's tireless love in old age. God doesn't need our worship, but we become like him when we do worship. It's good for us to be involved in worship. I love how the Bible ends, the last book of the Bible, Revelation. You might think of Revelation as all these weird sort of bowls of wrath being poured out. But actually, Revelation is built around a very clear pattern. Well, you might say, well, sure not clear to a lot of people. Okay, that's true. But, but there, there are seven times, the number seven is very important in Revelation, there are seven times in Revelation the storyline is interrupted. Things are going on on earth. They're not great things, believe me. And guess what happens? Seven times the storyline is interrupted with a scene in heaven of angels and those who've gone on before lost in worship to God. What's that all about? Well, it's basically a reminder that there's more going on than what you see in your day-to-day -day earthly life. And let that be an encouragement to you. There's more going on. There's, there's, they're, they're worshiping God because they're seeing the bigger picture. They're seeing the whole thing unfold. And worship is good for us because it helps us see by faith what we cannot see by our physical eye. It helps us see what's more real. Eugene Peterson has a beautiful way of sort of summarizing what worship is. Uh, he says it is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves in order to attend to the presence of God. It's time and place we assign to, to deliberate attentiveness to God. So I want to sort of pick up off of this quote, actually, and give us two applications about worship uh, that relate to our own situation right now. And that is, uh, first of all, the place. God's space, this space we're in right now, should reflect the God that we worship. What we do in this space and what this space looks like matters to God. Where did I come up with that? Well, I didn't. Uh, as it turns out, let's just think about the first few books of the Bible. Exodus spends 25 chapters detailing what God's physical space is supposed to look like. The next books, Leviticus, spends 27 chapters telling people what specifically you do in that space. And then we have 150 chapters called the Psalms of how we're supposed to sing to the Lord and make music to the Lord. It matters to the Lord what happens. The tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, they were the space where God met his people, where the Most High God met sinners. Now, I know, I've read the rest of the Bible, I know how the story ends. Jesus is the new and better temple. He is the new and better tabernacle, right? However, that doesn't mean that physical space is insignificant. Almost everything that happens in the Old Testament 
points toward the fulfillment of Jesus in the New Testament. And it doesn't replace it, it fulfills it and amplifies it. So worship space should reflect the even greater glory of God to whom the temple, the tabernacle, are pointing to the glory of Christ. In fact, it has been a long-standing tradition in Christianity. In fact, not just in the Catholic branch, but in every single branch of Christianity, even Protestant, even evangelical. It has been a long-standing tradition up until only very recent times that the physical space where God's people gather should reflect the God they worship. As much as people are able to afford, that space should capture God's eternal power and divine nature. A space like this should say majesty, not functionality and frugality. That's what this space is all about. In fact, uh, it's often the case, we had a pastor's meeting here not too long ago, a couple, I think it was just last week, it's often the case that when people come to this property, they comment about the beauty of God that's captured in the woods that surround it. And it also should be captured in the space in which they enter into as well. That same awe and majesty should be in this space. And in many ways it is. I love what David says in Psalm 27. One thing I've asked of the Lord, and that I shall seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to do what? To behold the beauty of the Lord. All right, where's he going with all this? Okay, here we go. You ready? So a while back, a couple of years back almost now, or maybe somewhere in that, we were blessed with a big financial gift. In fact, uh, $80,000 of that financial gift was for building improvements or, or expansions. Up until that time, we hadn't really been thinking much about this building other than the fact that it was getting older. It was reaching its 20-year mark <coughs> where it would, things would need to be replaced, like the roof. Uh, we just replaced the furnaces uh, recently. Uh, so that began to get us thinking, well, I wonder what the Lord wants us to do with this. And then he began to add even more resources uh, to uh, our, our, our situation here. And so we began thinking about so many different parts of our vision. How could this facility help with that? And then uh, back in November, we mentioned that one of the four phases that we have in mind, each phase being independent, one of the four phases is remodeling this sanctuary. And because the Lord has blessed us with, with resources, we're interested in doing much more than just putting a fresh coat of paint on this to freshen it up. We really want to see this place. We want to add if we can do it this way because the Lord has provided even more beauty to this place. And so a handful of us have been working for quite some time now on uh, thinking about this back wall here, uh, about reshaping it, about adding a substantial cross to it, about putting some texture behind that. Uh, and so you'll be hearing more about that in the days to come. And recently, something else we thought of that I bet most of you don't even know about. Do you know it's possible to actually view this sanctuary from upstairs? Yeah, that's right. That back wall right there, if you put a window in it, there's a whole other room back in there. And wouldn't it be great to have a cry room back there so that 
Families of very young kids could still participate visually with less concern about their kids being a distraction. So those are some of the ideas we're kicking around. But part of that is because there is a vision behind these changes. It isn't just the fact that we want to spend money. There is a vision behind uh, these changes, which leads to my last point here. As important it is for us to make changes to this space because of that vision, it's even more important that we as believers make space for God. And I know that to some extent I'm preaching to the choir right now, but that's okay. Uh, we are people who are committed to making space for God. When Tim read Psalm 92, I didn't know if he would do it, so I was, ha- I was thankful you did it, Tim, because it's actually part of the sacred text. Uh, it doesn't actually start in verse 1. It starts right before it. A song for what? The Sabbath. That's part of the sacred text. There's, there were actually songs written to celebrate the beauty of Sabbath. So it is good to do Sabbath. That's what really the first line there says. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. It's good to have Sabbath. And it's speaking about thanks to the Lord corporately. Uh, so here's a song celebrating the Sabbath command, which is part of the life-giving rhythm for God's people. The Sabbath command, by the way, never went away. Uh, the joke sometimes is we're uh, all nine of the Ten Commandments are still in, in uh, you know, uh, we have to obey, obey all nine of the Ten Commandments. And the fourth one is you don't have to obey the Sabbath anymore. Again, I don't buy that. I realize there's good Christians who think otherwise, and that's fine. Uh, but I think that all of the laws of the Old Testament are fulfilled and amplified in the New Testament. And so the law that was written on the heart produces a greater obedience than the law that's written on stone. So much so that if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, last text that we'll look at here, Hebrews chapter 10 that speaks about gathering together uh, in worship. Hebrews 10.23 says, really the whole section starting in verse 19, but I'll just start us in 23. It says, let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. That's the habit of some But why do we need to to meet together? To encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then he goes on to say in verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately, what? How are we sinning deliberately? By not doing what he's just spoken about in the previous verses. So here's a verse about, this isn't a verse that says, hey, you know what? I sure missed you the other day. It sure would be great if we kind of, you know, wouldn't it be great to meet on Sunday morning? This isn't kind of a, a mild statement of, hey, you guys, don't, don't forget to kind of make, you know, church, the Sabbath, kind of part of your rhythm. This is actually given in the context of a very, very severe warning. So let me just make it simple and do the math. Hebrews 10 would be saying that for people who neglect the gathering together, 
of the saints, they're acting like they're not attached to the vine at all. And the consequences are horrific for them. It's a very serious tone. So, so again, I know that you're already committed to that. I, I just say it's part of who we are to make space for this. And here's where I'm going with all of this. Prioritizing the Lord's Day, it's one of the few times we gather as a whole church. Uh, I just can't say enough about making that happen. But here's where it does. It starts Saturday night. It starts Saturday, Saturday night. Uh, otherwise, you're, I, I know that the, I can spot all of you who are sleeping right now, but um, <laughs> it starts Saturday, Saturday night, uh, and here's the other thing. Expect when you wake up Sunday morning to experience opposition, spiritual battle. I have rarely, in all my years as a believer, I have rarely had a Sunday morning when I have not tempted, I don't want to be there. And I'm even the guy who gets paid to be here. And I, as, a, as life has gone on, the spiritual battle has gotten worse. There's hardly a Sunday morning where I don't have to go through something physiological in order just to get rolling. Expect spiritual attacks. Sometimes it's in something simple like a horrible diaper. Uh, but here's, here's what, sorry, that's probably not the best illustration. <laughs> It's just the one I hear a lot, so sorry. And I would just say a word to those of you who are dads, or if you're the, a single parent in a household where you, by default, become the head of the household, but in households especially where there are dads who are called to share the burden of responsibility for your family, I would tell you if there's one morning in the week you should get up before everybody else and spend a few moments praying against the evil one and praying for your flock, it would be Sunday morning. Even if it's just five minutes. So making space for that, but expecting when you come here that the Lord is present here. Expecting that regardless of the experience you have on a given Sunday morning, the Lord is here, and the Lord has met you, and the Lord is working in you, even if you don't experience it. Expect that. Because that is, in fact, what happens in this place on this day. Hebrews goes on to say that, actually. It's how he encourages them at the end of chapter 12, verse 18. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness and gloom and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg. He's speaking about Mount Sinai where people are afraid. He said, but the church is something different, verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. This is where innumerable angels and festival are gathering. This is the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And God, the judge of all and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is where Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant that's so much better than the covenant of the sprinkled blood of Abel. All of that is here. Verse 28 it is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That's so full of drama, but probably some Sundays it just feels like it's all you can do just to get through the service. That's okay. The Lord Jesus Christ is here, and he's ready to meet us, and he meets us every time, and that's the beauty of what the church is. 
and why worship is so profoundly important to be part of your rhythm in life. And what a great way to end our worship, or I should say, to culminate our worship, the high point of our worship as we take bread and cup. So I'm going to ask the worship team and the guys serving to come forward. If you're here today with us visiting and you know Jesus as your Savior, as your King, this table is for you to be nourished on the body and blood of Christ. If you're here and you're not even certain if Jesus is your Savior, I would just simply invite you to do one of two things. Either stay where you are and just ask the Lord to open your eyes and see what it is that everybody else seems to be seeing. That's why that verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, the veil has been removed. Ask the Lord to remove the veil. And maybe the Lord's already started to do that this morning. Believe it or not, one of the simplest ways for you to receive Christ is literally to come forward and receive Christ. And to take the body and blood for the first time in your life as the, the body and blood that not only forgives you, but declares you perfectly right, righteous with God. God takes all of your sin, past, present, and future, puts it on the cross, and Christ takes all of his righteousness and puts it on you forever. That's the beauty of what happens in conversion. Uh, there are two ideas that uh, a church should try to capture in their architect. It is the idea of God's transcendence and his eminence. Transcendence, the idea that God is this unapproachable, supremely holy being. His eminence, that he has drawn near. Isn't it amazing that this is what this table is all about? Uh, this is God in our skin coming near to us, knowing us, fixing us. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I was so glad we made the decision to start having communion on a weekly basis because it is the high point of the service. Here is the Most High God sharing a meal with sinners. As Isaiah 57 puts it, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. That's the transcendence of God. I, I dwell in this high and holy place and also, and also because of the Son with him who is contrite and lowly of spirit. With a person who knows they're a sinner and needs a Savior, essentially. And guess what he does? Every time we come, he revives our spirit. He revives our heart. He puts more life in it. That's why we're here the unapproachable greatness of God is approachable because of the sacrificial nearness of Jesus. Let's take